Hey, welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. I'm Damien Blankensop, your host. Today's episode is a deep dive into everything ketones and ketosis. There are many, many great takeaways from today's episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you do too. As background, it would probably be a good idea to check out a few of the past episodes before or after this one. This would include Thomas Seafried, which was in episode 16, Gene Fine, episode 36, and Andrew Scarborough in episode 44. It's all related material, so uh, good background reading there. This is an expanding and very interesting area of research. There is growing evidence that ketone bodies, whether they come from fasting, keto diets, MCTs, or exogenous ketones, have potential applications across many, many areas from longevity to performance to health and mitigating some of the risks and symptoms from certain diseases, like cancer and neurologically inclined diseases. As such, the whole ketone body area is what I'd call a high leverage area due to the many potential upsides. So I've personally been investing more time into experimenting in this area as the payoff for that effort looks pretty promising. And you'll have noticed that I've done a fair amount of fasting and since late 2015, that's also now included the exogenous ketones and playing around with the ketogenic diet also. More to come on my results with all of those later. In this interview, we look at many of these applications and the nuances of the use of ketones in the body including using exogenous ketones to counter sleep deprivation and work basically without sleep, the benefits of metabolic flexibility or fuel diversification, the nuances of the different methods of driving your ketone metabolism from fasting approaches to keto diets to exogenous ketones and the MCT formulations like C8, C10. For those of you following the ketone topic, just recently there has been some confusion on the interwebs about the safety and effectiveness of MCTs and exogenous ketones. So we look at the evidence for their safety and the effectiveness profile. And of course, lots of quants. More on tracking and optimizing your ketone levels, the optimum everyday glucose ketone index, which we looked at before with Thomas Seafried and some of the fasting episodes and some of the health biomarkers that improve with ketone metabolism. Today's guest is Dominic D'Agostino. Dominic has something that I found is relatively rare, but makes for extremely valuable interviews. He has a combined perspective coming from both research and self-experimentation. He has a considerable amount of lab work and research specifically done into ketogenic diets, ketones, ketone-driving supplements, and a growing number of applications. And he has done a lot of his own self-experimentation over many years now in this area. Dominic is currently Associate Professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida. And he's also a Senior Research Scientist at the Institute for Humans and Machine Cognition, the IHMC. His research is focused on developing and testing ketogenic diets, ketone supplements, and amino acid formulations for a broad range of therapeutic and performance applications. His laboratory uses in vivo and in vitro techniques to understand the physiological, cellular, and molecular mechanism of nutritional ketosis and supplement formulas. His current efforts are focused on evaluating different methods for inducing and sustaining nutritional ketosis and how this can be optimized to the specific individual 
and applications. So we'll see in today's interview that there are a lot of nuances and it's a bit more complex than just boosting your ketones. His research is supported by the Office of Naval Research, the Department of Defense, sports supplement companies, and private foundations. So you'll notice that this is also a bit of a monster episode in length. And frankly, I had many, many other questions I would have liked to ask if we'd had more time. There's really no fluff here. And I hope to get to talk to Dominic again about his research and experimentation in the near future. As usual, we have great in-depth show notes with links to everything mentioned in the show and some easy to take away and apply summaries of the biomarkers, the tracking, the tools and the tactics we covered. To get the show notes, just go to verquantifiedbody.net and pick out the episode there. To get all of this in your email inbox via our newsletter, go to verquantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there and you'll get the in-depth show notes every time a episode comes out. Now, please enjoy this interview with Dominic D'Agostino on everything ketone bodies. The quantified body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Dom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Damien. Yeah, it's great to connect. So you're just back from a trip to Budapest, and you just told me that you're doing something to bypass the jet lag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes, depending on circumstances, I think sleep, I try to prioritize sleep, uh, try to get between six to seven hours, sometimes eight on the weekends if I can. But in the absence of sleep, yeah, I like to test certain things. If I know, usually happens about once every month or two where I'm going to have to skip one night completely and have to get kind of thrown right back into the fire of work again. So I'm doing that now. And uh and testing some different exogenous ketones in combination with caffeine and some hooperzine. What else? A few other little things in a stack formula that I'm working on. And it seems to be working because I'm, I'm functioning and uh, <laughs> been able to manage my tasks in a way that allows me to get stuff done. So Cool. So this could be a new jet lag formula. Yeah. Or just if you want to keep going on with sleep deprivation kind of thing if you want to work for a night or something. Yeah, yeah. So inevitably, people will come to the situation where they have to meet a deadline and stay up all night to yep. to get something. I don't recommend doing it all the time because you can get burnout. There is no pill that you can take that will substitute for sleep. But there are ways to extend your productivity and performance with two or three days of no sleep. I don't like when those situations arise, but I kind of worked on ways to mitigate some of the impairments that accompany that. That's excellent. I mean, that sounds like another application of for exogenous uh, ketones I hadn't thought of. I know there are a whole bunch I want to discuss with you because it seems like there's quite a few of them. So now there's also, if you want to work all night, they can help with that. I'm tempted actually, what is the mechanism behind that specifically for sleep? Is it is it just a pure energy thing? or well, As far as the sleep mitigating? Why would exogenous ketones help with yeah, I think there's several ways that they can help. You can formulate things to provide energy to the brain. So there's various uh, what we call tricarboxylic acid cycle intermediates, including alpha-ketoglutarate, 
Creatine is actually something that could be beneficial to the brain when energy reserves are low. And ketones have a unique effect of being, I'd like to use the term anapleurotic. So if something's anapleurotic, it helps to generate the bioenergetic intermediates, which include the Krebs cycle, or also called the TCA cycle intermediates, and essentially just helping to energize the brain when fuel flow is kind of low. These, many of the TCA cycle intermediates are also precursors to uh, neurotransmitters. For example, alpha-ketoglutarate is a precursor to glutamate. And then from glutamate through glutamic acid decarboxylase, we make GABA. So ensuring that we have efficient sort of energy flow to the brain and, and sort of stimulating anapleurotic reactions and bioenergetic reactions, we can replenish the neurotransmitters. Being in a state of ketosis too can also be glycogen sparing. And I've always had the kind of opinion that when we sleep, part of the function of sleep, there are many functions, but part of the function is to not only restore neurotransmitters, but to also restore brain glycogen levels. And glycogen is actually stored in the, the astrocytes of the brain. So astrocytes are not just for support cells. They, they have really important functions as it pertains to glutamate recycling and sort of dynamic interactions with the synapses and, and recycling of, of neurotransmitters. And restoring brain glycogen levels is a function when we sleep. And I think we need to look into this more, but I have a theory that being in a state of ketosis, strong ketosis can prevent some of the glycogen depletion that accompanies a normal day in a person that is normally sort of carbohydrate fed, where the brain is just sucking up massive amounts of glucose. But if you're ensuring that it gets a steady fuel flow of ketones, it's going to be glycogen sparing in that way. Sort of like what Jeff Volk is doing with the athletes and showed in a recent metabolism paper that being keto fat adapted and keto adapted can actually be very glycogen sparing. Uh, when we, if we look at the muscles of elite athletes on a carbohydrate restriction, amazingly, their glycogen stores are topped off in the muscle. So, And I think the same thing is happening. I see no reason why it wouldn't happen in the brain too. And when our energy reserves in our brain tank, adenosine goes up, neurotransmitters are depleted, we want to sleep. And I think being in a state of ketosis can slow that process and exogenous ketones can be a tool in the toolbox to help with that. And it's really fascinating. It's like the biochemistry of sleep because we just think we're getting tired and I think we understand it on a very generic basic level, but you've just broken down quite a few mechanisms which lead to us needing to sleep and how to count on them. Yeah, sleep's really a complicated subject. I, I did my PhD in a pulmonary critical care department that was also a sleep lab. So I sat in on a lot of rounds and meetings with residents and fellows about, about the mechanics of sleep. It's just a fascinating subject and something I'll probably get more into research-wise. But I do teach the medical students about obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea because that sort of is some of the research that I did is in my PhD. Excellent. And you're on a keto diet as well, right? Still. Yeah. I maintain that, but I also like to cycle it a little, a little bit because I think a lot of the therapeutic and performance enhancing benefits can be achieved with nutritional ketosis. But I also think it's good to have relative changes sort of, and not to stay on something all the time but to adjust your macronutrients a little bit and also maybe your calories 
a little bit and occasionally, as you know, do uh, fasting. And these relative changes can produce some pretty good performance and therapeutic effects. It's kind of like exercise, like a hormetic and yeah, like exactly. promoting metabolic flexibility. Is that where you're coming from? Yeah, that's what I was going to say and kind of relate it back to a hormetic effect where relative changes are, are kind of good and not to be on something. For a while, I just stayed on the exact same ketogenic diet for a long time. And I started adjusting and playing around with different supplements. And I realized it's good to to sort of adjust the diet and even adjust your, your calorie levels sometimes. And my life is kind of variable, so it kind of fits in with my lifestyle too. To yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I'm probably doing something a bit more uh, varied as well these days. So um, I was just interesting because you said you're like basically stacking exogenous ketones right now for sleep on top of your keto diet. Does that push your levels quite high? At least doubles or maybe triples where I would be. Because I, I do notice, I've noticed in the past that if I just stick to my normal diet and I cross time zones, I've been in at least a dozen time zones over the last a month and a half, two months. When I do that and I miss a complete night of sleep, just if my coming from Southeast Asia is like completely flipped circadian. I realize that I get a stress response from that. I think my cortisol goes up, my sympathetic nervous system can be activated. Okay. And I notice that that can kind of kick me out of ketosis a little bit, or I'll have levels that are, I would predict they would be much higher based on the macronutrient profile that I'm eating and, and even fasting. So I find that exogenous ketones can sort of help in those situations where um, put my body into an unaccustomed stress. That's very interesting. I've started to use some of the supplements, um, exogenous ketones uh, for different scenarios, a bit like that situational, but uh, we can talk about that a bit later. So I wanted to give people uh, a background. Would you say your focus area is ketones, ketogenic diet? Is, is that what you'd call your focus area of research? Yeah, I'm classically sort of trained as a neuroscientist. I, I did my PhD mm -hmm. in very, something very specific. It's patch clamp electrophysiology, where you measure from individual neurons and you kind of record the membrane potential, firing frequency, input resistance of individual neurons, either in cell culture or in like a brain slice and studying the pharmacology and the metabolic activity. I became very interested in observing fundamental neuronal activity. I became very interested in the metabolism that was supporting that. And I realized that the life that I was seeing on the amplifier, the oscilloscope, these neurons firing was completely a result of sort of the electrochemical and the, the electrical gradients between the neurons. They're, they're like little batteries. And, uh, and that was generated completely by the metabolic activity. So cells, they need to maintain like negative 56 kilojoules per mole of energy, and they will do anything to do that. Some substrates and some means of generating ATP are more efficient than others. So in my early work, I was actually looking at lactate and was interested in like ringer's lactate. So racemic ringer's lactate is actually used on the battlefield and also in surgery when people have a lot of a massive blood loss. And lactate is an extremely efficient fuel. And I studied hypoxia in the brain and ischemia and was kind of interested in, in lactate for that. And, and that got me interested in sort of this whole idea of developing and testing metabolic substrates 
to preserve and enhance brain energy metabolism in the face of extreme environments. And our work has been, for the last decade, has been funded by the military. So I'm interested in particular situations that would accompany sort of a military operations like a Navy SEAL using a closed circuit rebreather with high levels of oxygen. And he's susceptible to a limitation of his mission would be oxygen toxicity seizures. So the fundamental neuroscience that I learned in my PhD, I sort of apply that to developing and testing metabolic-based therapies to preserve that cognitive function and metabolic resilience in the environmental extreme of high-pressure oxygen. And that's been sort of a fun thing to do because there's many ways to do it. (laughs) I'm always looking for the next or the optimal formula of ketones. And that's why we don't focus on any one particular exogenous ketones. We screen a variety of ketogenic agents or formulas of them to identify the one that's most neuroprotective or anticonvulsant, depending. I mean, now we do cancer studies and we do wound healing and we do performance applications and, and it might be a different ketone for, for different applications. And, and we're testing that now. We, in Budapest, we actually presented some really interesting work on anxiety. So if we induce a state of nutritional ketosis, so the anxiety levels go down pretty significantly, where in our rodent model, they'll spend 30% more time in in like an open arm of an elevated plus maze. And perhaps that reduced anxiety can play a role in reducing seizures too. So it's another variable that we need to sort of look at. Probably went off on a tangent, but you asked me about, so my background was neuroscience. And now now I do what I would call nutritional neuroscience or metabolic-based sort of strategies to target neuronal processes and neuroprotection. Okay, great. So how many years is it you've been doing this now? Um, I started neuroscience research as an undergraduate in, in 1997. So it's going on about 1996 or 97. So about 20 years now, I've been into neuroscience research. And the project that I've, the ketone, well, the Office of Navy Research postdoctoral fellowship was the first kind of large like grant money that I got. And that was 10 years ago. And then it took me about four years to sort of recognize that the most potent strategy for oxygen toxicity for mitigating that, which I was being funded to do, would be a ketogenic approach. And then the ketogenic diet at the time was recognized as something that was very obscure, even just six years ago. So the funding agency really wanted a ketogenic diet in a pill, per se. So in addition to our ketogenic diet research, which I feel is also very important, we have developed these synthetic and actually naturally derived ketogenic agents to mimic the effects of fasting, to mimic the effects of the ketogenic diet, and also to further augment the therapeutic efficacy of the ketogenic diet. So if the ketogenic diet can only get you to one to two millimolar, and we boosted another one or two millimolar with exogenous ketones, we've realized that that can be very beneficial. Not everybody can follow a ketogenic diet, including performance applications or for therapeutic purposes. Yeah. Yeah. People find it quite hard. And I think it's relatively complex to get into it. I speak to a lot of people who think they're in ketosis, but they're not. 
Yeah, <laughs> I do too. It's a little bit tricky, I think. So alas comes the supplementation and so on, which can make it easier. So what is, I think is really awesome about you as well is like you self-experiment as well. In addition to your research, you're always looking at um, this stuff yourself. And I know you've been on a keto diet um, yourself for a long time. When did you start that? Yeah, that's the really fun part of this research that I'm, I'm really excited about. I've started, well, I guess looking back, I did low carb diets for a while because I was always into powerlifting and fitness and, and nutrition. So I would experiment and I was under the impression that being in ketosis was kind of bad. And when I did a low carb diet or what I call the ketogenic diet, I remember smelling like ammonia because it was basically a very high protein, zero carb diet with minimal amount of fat. And then I got educated, I guess you could say, and connected with the folks at Johns Hopkins who are using this on a clinical setting. I read the book by John Freeman and Eric Kossoff at Johns Hopkins, which is a great book, The Ketogenic Diet for Epilepsy and Other Disorders. It's out there. It's one of the more popular books on Amazon. And I realized, wow, I didn't know what a ketogenic diet was. I didn't realize it has this fascinating history. And I've written with Travis Christofferson, we wrote a three, three-part sort of series on Rob Wolf's blog about the ketogenic diet, the history. And when I actually got into the four-to-one ratio ketogenic diet, the Johns Hopkins, which is like 90% fat, and I transitioned into a state of nutritional ketosis, it was a little, not a little bit, it was kind of difficult in the beginning. And after about two or three weeks I adapted quite well and started realizing the neurological sort of benefits. The appetite suppression was pretty, pretty extreme. It was, it was kind of difficult for me to maintain my weight even. In terms of losing weight? Yeah, it was because my protein level was really high. I think I was getting at the time, I was probably getting about 300 grams of protein a day, uh, which is really high. And then so I had to drop that down to about 100 grams of protein a day to hit those macronutrient ratios, well, probably about 120 grams a day of protein, which was a lot low. It was a relative change that was really low. And when I reduced my protein to one third, but elevated my fat, and I still kept going to the gym. But at the time, my academic career was sort of going full steam and I was in the gym less, but still making it in about once or twice a week. My weights that I was handling on major exercises were maintained so I realized that being in a state of nutritional ketosis had a pretty profound anti, anti-catabolic effect. So I figured I'd be wasting away if I wasn't giving my body all this protein. But I was amazed that I could eat. And I even started experimenting and went down to like 60 or 80 grams of protein a day. And even after a couple of weeks and months, I was able to still move the same kind of weights so it really blew my mind that shifting the metabolic physiology to being more fat and keto adapted had this sort of protein sparing anti-catabolic effect, which makes sense if you look at it through like an evolutionary lens. So if we stop eating and we didn't make ketones to fuel this big, highly energetic organ in our head, <laughs> if the ketones weren't providing fuel for our brain, we would liberate a lot of gluconeogenic amino acids from skeletal muscle. And we would quickly waste away probably in a week or two for a lean individual. That's important to recognize in the context of using a ketogenic diet for a weight loss strategy and also for body composition too. For example, athletes that need to make weight, which many sports do, wrestling, uh, boxing, mixed martial arts or whatever, 
keeping that power to weight ratio is important. And we think from the studies that we've done, we actually just got a, a study approved finally for publication yesterday showing elite level athletes or sort of advanced lifters that the ketogenic diet is quite effective for body composition alterations and preserving strength and muscle, muscle strength and performance. So that should be out pretty soon in Journal of Strength and Conditioning. We realize that the ketogenic diet has far more applications than just pediatric epilepsy, which was its original application. And uh, we've probably studying, I don't know, about 10 different applications now in our lab. Excellent. So I wanted to run through some of those uh, applications, but first of all, taking a step back, because you mentioned lactate earlier. I think everyone assumes, like the majority of us assume, that glucose is the main metabolism. Then we learn about ketones and we think maybe there's two substrates that we're using for metabolism. But I, as I understand it, it's a lot more complicated, right? We're using a number of different fuels at any time. Yeah, yeah. I think the big ones for brain metabolism, which is sort of what our lab originally focused on, but now we've branched off, would be ketones and or would be glucose would be the primary sort of fuel for, for most people. And then ketones is sort of the backup fuel. And if you're on a ketogenic diet, you're running this hybrid engine and you're using both fuels at the same time with ketones, probably the more efficient of the two. And then lactate too. And when we exercise, we mobilize a lot of lactate and put a lot of lactate back into the bloodstream. And through what's called the Cori cycle, we convert that back to glucose and then uh, it can replenish liver glycogen or, or muscle glycogen. But that lactate can also go past the uh, blood-brain barrier across what's called the monocarboxylic acid transporters and provide a, a source of energy for our brains. And Lactate metabolism in the brain can also occur under conditions of oxygen deprivation. So it, it may it may be beneficial, and the sort of that's what I was interested in my early work is using lactate to preserve bioenergetic processes in the absence of oxygen, what we call hypoxia or anoxia, which is like complete lack of oxygen. When ketones, interestingly, ketones can generate more ATP per oxygen molecule consumed. So in a hypoxic situation, ketone metabolism may also be able to preserve the bioenergetic state of, of the brain. And that's something that we're also looking into, hypoxia and ischemia protection of the brain with various fuels, ketones, lactate, preventing or just, just an alternative substrate to glucose. In certain situations, neuropathologies and even hypoxia, stroke, a brain injury for traumatic brain injury can cause a quick impairment of glucose utilization in the brain by internalization of the GLUT3 transporter and also uh, inactivation or reduced activity of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. The PDH complex can be impaired under certain conditions of brain injury. Even certain viruses that cause neuroinflammation can impair this sort of rate-limiting step for glucose metabolism. So alternative energy substrates are a way to, to bypass that glucose block. It's like a diversification strategy. It is, yeah. It, in diving, we always talk about being redundant. You need a level of redundancy to ensure safety. I think the, the brain does that pretty nicely. So we achieve that with fasting, right? So we have alternative energy substrates being utilized in the absence of glucose. But it's interesting to be able to delve into that and understand what happens during fasting in different states. And from my perspective, it's a fascinating field of research to develop naturally derived or synthetic agents that can mimic those processes. 
Right, right. Do we also like, because when we're on a ketogenic diet, do we also use fatty acids directly for energy substrates or do they have to be turned into ketones first? Yeah, to some extent, hepatic gluconeogenesis will be in a state of fasting completely dependent upon the liberation of fatty acids from adipose tissue, right? So really fat mobilization is directly almost correlated to ketone production in that fasted state. So our heart can use fatty acids more efficiently than it can glucose. And our heart is an, an awesome fat burner. Skeletal muscle is an awesome fat burner, especially in the keto fat adapted athlete. The liver, various organs can use fatty acids quite efficiently. The long chain fatty acids do not readily cross the blood brain barrier. Short chain fatty acids do, and medium chain fatty acids can actually cross the blood brain barrier. That was kind of sort of an interest of mine. And we did some brain metabolomic studies where we took out the hippocampus of some rodent models that we looked at. And we saw a high level of, of the C8 and the C10 MCT that we administered to the animals. So it was very clear to me that I think if we looked at the ratio between the blood levels and the brain levels, I think there was kind of like a one to five ratio. So it does wasn't like readily getting through, but a lot of it was getting into the brain. And of course, the brain was metabolizing it. So it might have been sort of our numbers may have not correlated precisely in a one-to-one -one ratio in that way. But it's clear that our body can use fatty acids as fuels, and it's an incredible fuel for our mitochondria because they're metabolized kind of exclusively in the mitochondria through oxidative phosphorylation. I would say ketone molecules are, uh, I like to call them water-soluble fat molecules, it's sort of an excessive beta-oxidation or accelerated beta-oxidation in the liver contributes to the accumulation of acetyl-CoA, which causes, which drives ketone production, hepatic ketogenesis. So the acetyl-CoA essentially condenses to form acetoacetate and then a, then a beta-hydroxybutyrate, and these spill into the, the bloodstream. So it's interesting that the liver is a massive ketone producer, but it lacks certain enzymes that prevent the liver from using the ketones as an energy source. So it lacks succinyl-CoA transferase, for example. So the liver will produce massive amounts of ketones and then dump it into the bloodstream, primarily for our central nervous system to maintain energy flow to the brain and the central nervous system, and probably the heart too. So the liver is a greedy organ. <laughs> like if you're fasted and you eat, the amino acids and, and glucose will basically stay in the liver and the liver will take what it needs and put whatever is left into the bloodstream. But with ketones, since the liver does not metabolize ketones, it puts them sort of immediately in the bloodstream when it's burning fat for energy. And looking at it through an evolutionary sort of lens, that function is to ensure that our brain gets adequate fuel flow. And in the absence of food, if our brain tanked because we were hypoglycemic, we wouldn't be able to hunt. And so, so being very lucid and being sort of having our brains energized during a period of food deprivation ensured that our species survived. And the humans that weren't able to do that did not go on and live. So I think we're sort of hardwired in a way to function optimally when we're in a fasted state. And I think that's important to recognize also in the context of a society that's that's sort of programmed to give three high carbohydrate feedings per day and with that genetic program that metabolic program that is that is activated during fasting is largely silenced 
because of the societal norms associated with our macronutrient profile, but also our eating pattern, which is frequent feedings throughout the day. Yeah. One of the reasons I asked this is because I've had some kind of fear, like um, scared feedback about uh, fast, for instance, which is a bit more of an extreme situation than a ketogenic diet normally. One of the things I did was I published some of my, my own information on YouTube and I got some crazy comments from people saying I was going to die because my glucose was low, right? I think it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it was 3.3 millimolar or something, about 55 54 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. My mother's a nurse and she saw the numbers and she was quite shocked at the time as well. Right. And so I think everyone thinks that we're driven solely by glucose metabolism and that's the only thing they look at. So I think it's really interesting that we have several various fuels that we can be going on. And it's, it turns out that glucose isn't that important. Someone else just uh, sent me their numbers recently and they were the lowest I'd ever seen. A girl was doing a fast and um, she got 1.8 millimolar wow. with her glucose, wow. which is I don't know if you've ever seen anything that low. I did. Well, when I fasted for a week, I tried some strategies that probably shouldn't talk about on here, but, uh, okay. (laughs) In case someone else does it. (laughs) Yeah. After fasting a week, I was staying around the mid fifties to low fifties. And occasionally I would dip into the high forties depending on my activity and things like that. I did some sort of strategies. I'll just label it strategies to lower it down to to a level that the meter didn't read. So it just actually was flashing low. And my meter reads, the lowest my meter was able to read was 26 milligrams per deciliter, 26 or 25. So I assume 25 is sort of, that's the limit. And I spent a good part of the day with it flashing low and unable to read. And I was using the Nova Max meter and I was using the Precision Extra meter and also using the Neo meter. So I had three different meters and I was scrambling. Do you mean, is that the Freestyle Optim Neo? Yeah, the Freestyle. Yeah, it's kind of like a lower profile sort of meter than the uh, Precision Extra. So I had three different meters that I'm kind of measuring. And I was like, oh no, I don't, I don't even know what my <laughs> glucose is. All I know is it's like probably in the one millimolar range. Wow. And uh, I was starting to feel a little bit using different, different pharmacological strategies to lower it. Yeah. But uh, I realized that I was at a level that was universally fatal for right. for everyone if I didn't have my ketones elevated. Right. But if you'd been admitted to hospital, they put you in the emergency ward. Yeah. Most, yeah. most probably if you walked in like that. Yeah. I mean, during this particular day, I was preparing for a lecture. I was writing a grant. I was, you know, really productive day. I was just kind of, as I was working, I was kind of doing these things and I would do measurements and then work for a little bit more. And it just goes to show you, it was a very dramatic demonstration that an alternative energy source. And that, for me, that has tremendous implications therapeutically for someone that's experiencing insulin shock or neurological disease with impaired glucose metabolism. So we work very closely with the glucose transporter type 1 deficiency association. It's a rare disease where the brain does not have glucose available due to a deficiency of the GLUT1 transporter. And there's many different diseases like that. And I was also sort of inspired by the work of George Cahill. There was a study that was published in 1967. The first author was Oliver Owen. And they fasted subjects for 40 days. And in sort of another report that wasn't originally published with the, with the original report, I found it in, in another book, they administered insulin, 20 IUs of insulin. Uh, they gave IV and they lowered in these fasted subjects, they lowered the glucose down to one to two millimolar. 
and kept it down there. So it's like 35 milligrams per deciliter, somewhere around there. Uh, yeah, it's not even that. It was, yeah, about about that 25 range that my meter couldn't read. So one millimolar would be 18 milligrams per deciliter. That sort of inspired me. I was thinking, if these subjects can fast for 40 days, I could do a week. So it was about like five years ago or so. <laughs> that's that's when I, I did the, the week-long fast and did some experiments on myself. I did one of the most interesting things that happened to me was my breath hold time. So at the time I was outside a lot. I was in and out of the pool and taking walks, like short walks, and just trying to stay active, keep my mind off of food, because the main challenge was just the the pleasure of eating was was not there. And I was swimming and I realized I was under the pool and I realized, wow, I was had been down for quite a while and I wasn't gasping for air. And so I got back up to the surface and my girlfriend was there at the time, now my wife, and I started testing my breath hold time. I was like, you know, just keep an eye on me. And normally I could do over a minute, about 90 seconds, but I was able to go, stay down for like three to four minutes, like three minutes, which is remarkable. I don't have any kind of specialized training. I've been wanting to take a free diver course. I know Ben Greenfield did, and we exchanged some emails and stuff when he was going through that because he was trying exogenous ketones. But I found that after one week of fasting, I had a profound prolongation of my breath hold time. I think that's fascinating to me. Fasting does definitely start to shut down your metabolism. I think my body temperature probably went down a degree or two. So the metabolic demands just weren't there. But I I think our drive to breathe has a lot to do with our CO2 sensitivity. So there's sort of receptors in the ventral respiratory group and the ventral surface of the medulla that sort of sense CO2 levels and drive drive the urge to breathe. And we also have the carotid bodies at the bifurcation of the common carotid artery that sense oxygen and CO2. And they also mitigate, or they also play a role in the drive to breathe. And I think there's, there's interesting mechanisms going on there, kind of a desensitization in some way, or in combination to just altering our metabolic physiology. So I think that has some practical benefits too for different sports different maybe military operations. So I want to study that a little bit further. Those are the adaptations that happen during fasting. Yeah, yep. very interesting. I'm wanting to go and test that out with free diving. Yeah, um, well, a, a number of other people have. I think I might have mentioned it once or twice, like very briefly, not as descriptive in other podcasts, but and then other people went out there and did it. Even I think Tim Ferriss did it. And I'm not sure if he blogged about it yet, but he sent me quite a few texts and emails just saying that dramatically enhanced his breath hold time. So I'm pretty sure it's a real phenomenon. (laughs) Very, very cool. So to kind of round that that conversation off, I get these emails, like I said, people are scared because they get injuring fast in particular. They're getting uh, very low glucose levels of, say, 30, 35 milligrams per deciliter. Do you think that's something to be concerned about or is it actually absolutely no problem? Like, and typically they have ketones of like six millimolar, somewhere around there at that stage. I wouldn't recommend that for long-term sustainment of life because there are a lot of biological processes that require glucose. You know, your red blood cells, your kidney, certain immune cells require, and even biosynthetic processes like the generation of certain neurotransmitters are in some part glucose dependent. I think it's good to get into that level. And I'm going out on a limb by saying this, being a mainstream sort of medical college. But I actually think it's it's very good to 
be in a state of nutritional ketosis with sustained hypoglycemia for a period of time and to do that at least once a year, preferably a couple times a year. And I think that really kicks on a genetic program that activates so many biological processes that I think could be protective from enhanced insulin sensitivity to autophagy to activating a number of different genes. The CERT1, obviously, AMP kinase is activated, mTOR is suppressed. Uh, you put tremendous metabolic stress on glycolytic cancer cells or precancer cells that we may have in our body. So I think it's in that way, sort of an, an immune activation. I know uh, Dr. Adrian Sheck is doing some work with the ketogenic diet, and she's doing some really elegant work on the the immune activation. And, and from the gist of it and from other bodies of, of literature, it supports the idea that the immune system becomes hypervigilant to sort of recognizing and attacking existing cancer cells when we put our bodies into the state of fasting, either prolonged fasting or, or even a ketogenic diet. So I think it's good to do that some of the times. But I think, say, if you're on the ketogenic diet all the time in a state of moderate ketosis and then you fast, you're probably not going to get the same benefits as a person who is on like a high-carb diet and did a fast. But it would be a lot harder for that person who is on a high-carb diet to do a fast. It would be a greater stress because it's that relative change or that, that pulse. So Thomas Seyfried and I were going to work on, and it was originally sort of his idea that we talked a lot about sort of this press pulse phenomenon and for the metabolic management of cancer, where you keep the press would be just a mild state of nutritional ketosis and the pulse could be periodic fasting or sort of some of the things that we're interested in is hyperbaric oxygen therapy that could sort of be pulsed exogenous ketones to further allow for a greater hypoglycemic response. And it also, you could pulse various cancer-specific metabolic drugs like 2-deoxyglucose or dichloroacetate or 3-bromopyruvate could be used. But that you had the press would be just nutritional ketosis, and that will metabolically compromise a lot of the highly glycolytic, which corresponds to highly aggressive cancer cells. So when you say press, that would be like a chronic, something chronic that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So we know that being in a state of nutritional ketosis causes suppression of the hormone insulin. And many of the, the, the cancer cells that light up on a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan and FDG PET scan, those cancer cells, the PET scan is really the gold standard technique or a PET CT, I would say, when it's coupled with uh, the CT scan allows you to, to precisely locate where that hypermetabolic activity is. So the PET-CT is an incredible kind of gold standard tool to assess the location and aggressiveness of existing cancer cells. And that the greater the standardized sort of values that are coming out, so like 2.5 would be sort of like the normalized value. And if you have a PET scan is showing SUVs of 100 or, or 250, those cancer cells are very aggressive. So they show up as the big red or red and yellow blotches. Yes. So, yeah, we spoke to Gene Fine in a, a previous episode. He was talking about the PET scan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, Dr. Fine, you probably know, he did a, a study for 28 days. He did a, a study with a ketogenic diet, and he selected patients based on their PET scans, too. And, they got, and he found out sort of a, a topic that I was going to touch on is that insulin suppression 
correlates with ketosis. So I think even the title of his paper didn't even mention the ketogenic diet. It was something like insulin inhibition therapy <laughs> can be used to target cancer. Like it didn't even like talk about the ketogenic diet. But if you read if you read the paper, he basically used a ketogenic diet to suppress the hormone insulin as a therapy for managing these hard to treat cancers or people who have failed the standard of care. So that would be the press that I'm talking about. The ketogenic diet limits glucose availability to the cancer cells. It suppresses the hormone insulin, which drives IGF-1 and, and mTOR and other factors that cause cancer cell growth and proliferation. And it also elevates, I don't know if Dr. Fine talked about it, but he has a number of publications and we have too. We actually, I was inspired by his work and it actually got us to look at exogenous ketones, the effect on cancer cells. We find that if you limit glucose, suppress the hormone insulin and elevate ketones, the ketones themselves have anti-cancer effects. So we did a study we published in the International Journal of Cancer. The first author was my graduate student at the time, Dr. Angela Poff. She's now a research associate following up on this work. We gave ketones to highly aggressive cancer cells that have that are glioblastoma-like in origin. And when we we grew the cancer cells in the presence of ketones, even in the presence of 25 millimolar glucose right? It inhibited, it dramatically slowed down cancer growth and proliferation. And we all, we did a viability testing where we look at live cells and dead cells and the ratios of that. We found significantly more dead cells when we grew the uh, cancer cells with ketones, even in the presence of glucose. So it was shut, the, the ketones, the take home was that the ketones were probably turning down or shutting off a lot of the, some of the glycolytic mechanisms. And there's previous reports suggesting that ketone metabolism can turn down glycolytic metabolism. So that would be the press. So, so it's like a signal even for the cancer cells? Yes. Yep. For them to switch it off even though they can't use the ketones? Yeah. Yeah, we think so. And now we're mechanistically need to really dissect those kinds of signals that are happening with the ketones because to do really high level science, you really need to mechanistically sort of dissect out. Well, our lab approaches things a little different. <laughs> we don't sort of identify a target and then work up from that. We like to, we screen a lot of things at the top and find out what works. And then once we find out what actually causes animals to live longer or produce a, a neuroprotective effect, then we go and try to find the mechanism. So that sounds a little bit like the pharmaceutical drug research process where they screen many, many molecules for doing something. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like maybe it's an efficient process to find things that work by just screening a lot of things and then focusing on the things that are working. Yeah, that, okay. So it's a little different though. So with pharmaceutical companies, they actually target a mechanism or a biological kind of process, an enzyme. So they are looking for an end result, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So we're like testing a bunch of things. We don't even know how they work. Right. Like we're, <laughs> we're testing various ketogenic exogenous ketone formulas and we don't even have the pharmacokinetics nailed down yet. We don't even know specifically how they're metabolized. We feel that it's really important to get this research done so we can get these therapeutic agents out there as fast as possible. We screen a lot in various agents that are almost like first in human or first in animal. And then we identify sort of what works, but the mechanisms, the metabolism is incredibly complex. And what we find is that it's not working through one particular mechanism. It's 
many different mechanisms sort of all working in synergy. Like the ketogenic diet, you have an increase in the GABA to glutamate ratio. You have more ATP production. You have a greater sort of bioenergetic potential of the mitochondria. Uh, you have more TCA cycle intermediates. The list goes on and on. There's a science paper showing that ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate is an HDAC inhibitor. We published a Nature Medicine paper showing that it inhibits the NLRP3 inflammasome, and that's independent of metabolism. So it's like a huge dynamic system. Yeah. And there's no way you can see all of the mechanisms going on there. So you're saying you look for the end effects, and then you, you start looking for the mechanisms, all of these mechanisms you just brought up, and start piecing them together to see how it worked after you've got the end result you wanted. Yeah, the important thing is that it works, and then we'll... The secondary important thing right. is to find out the mechanism. Because once you do know the mechanism, if it... The majority of therapeutic effects or performance enhancing effects are due to a particular mechanism out of many mechanisms. Then we can tweak the molecule or the formula, or the pharmacokinetics to further sort of enhance that particular mechanism. And then we can kind of go back and, and tweak the formula or the molecule to make it hydrolyze faster or to increase the sustainment of it or deliver it in a certain nanoparticle formula to a particular tissue or something like that. So we've already spoken about quite a variety of basically applications, uh, benefits of ketone-based metabolism and ketones. Could you just go through like the top ones in your mind? Maybe the ones we haven't, we haven't already covered. So I know a lot of people are focused on weight loss, for instance. And that probably goes back to like the, what do they call the Banting diet, right? So, and that even predates some of the work that I first got attracted to in epilepsy. So epilepsy, that would be like the big thing, right? So the, the ketogenic diet, the only thing that it's used for, for standard of care in mainstream medicine is the management of epilepsy. And I would like to, I always harp on this too, that the ketogenic diet is grossly underutilized as a tool for managing epilepsy because it works when drugs fail and it works in about two thirds of the population. Imagine the efficacy of it if it was like the first line of therapy. And I think it's, it's really, if you have a child that's like two or three years old and you load them up with anticonvulsant drugs, we know that these anticonvulsant drugs cause developmental delays. And it's even more important in pediatric epilepsy, I think, to start with a ketogenic diet. So I just like to throw that out there. Yeah, we already talked about epilepsy. So epilepsy would be the big one. And then obviously weight loss, you have the original Banting diet. And then Atkins came out with what he said was his famous diet, but it was really a playoff of the Banting diet. And it allows for effortless weight loss because when you're in a state of nutritional ketosis, the ketones function to control appetite. So it prevents your appetite from controlling you, really. We don't really know. The mechanisms that regulate appetite control are incredibly complex, but we think that the ketones are essentially telling the brain it's kind of in a fed state. That's a simplistic way to put it. Okay. Ketones get converted back into fat or do they, because people know that you pee basically ketones out, right? When you first get onto a keto diet. So is that one of the mechanisms also? Well, yeah, if you look at, if you collect all the urine of someone that's on a ketogenic diet and then you, you look at how many calories is there, it's pretty marginal. Like I think Atkins was maybe even kind of advertising, look, you're peeing out fat, you're peeing out calories, but it only comes out to like 50 to a hundred calories or something like that. I think the big effect, 
the metabolic advantage really is not that you're burning more calories. I think there's different organizations out there that were trying to prove <laughs> that there's a metabolic advantage to being in ketosis. I think the big advantage that we need to focus on is appetite regulation. And the, our current diets of processed carbohydrates contribute to appetite dysregulation. So the ketogenic diet is very effective at restoring sort of normal appetite behavior because there's not fluctuations in blood glucose. So if we're on a carbohydrate-based diet and we go hypoglycemic, that's going to trigger an intense craving for a carbohydrate refeed to reestablish that glycemia, right? That's a completely abolished on the ketogenic diet. So when you're on a, on a well-formulated ketogenic diet, the craving that you'd have with hypoglycemia is going to be significantly attenuated, if not abolished. So weight loss, we talk about weight loss and type 2 diabetes, pretty much every disorder out there, let's think cancer, even kidney failure, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease, and many other pathologies are sort of linked pathophysiologically to the metabolic dysregulation and also obesity type 2 diabetes. So if a diet does promote healthy weight loss and sustainment of that weight loss, it's going to be therapeutic for many other disorders. So some of the things that we study include Alzheimer's disease, ALS. We have a really active cancer research program in the lab. I have uh, two PhD students right now studying. One is really looking at metform and other cancer-specific metabolic drugs, but combining it with a ketogenic diet. But his main thing is to sort of look at drugs. Uh, but we think some drugs will synergize with the ketogenic diet. And another project is looking at the ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones and branched-chain amino acids to mitigate cancer cachexia, which is muscle loss or wasting with that. So we're looking at that exercise performance. Obviously, you know, we're looking at that. And uh, the most recent data that I'm really excited about because it was a pretty, pretty robust effect as far as some of the behavioral models that we use. One particular model is the elevated plus maze, which looks at sort of anxiety. And we found that uh, being in a state of nutritional ketosis that was induced completely with exogenous ketones stimulates in the elevated plus maze, which is like a rodent going out on a catwalk. If you can envision like a catwalk where there's like a, you can go into a cave or come out <laughs> into an open area where you're on like a plank and you're kind of elevated in the air. And it's a very anxiety producing sort of situation that in our rodent models, uh, and it's validated as a very useful model, will spend much more time in the open arm and less more time hiding in the cave. And we think that has significant implications for military personnel with PTSD and anxiety in general. And a lot of depression too is also sort of, there's a comorbidity there with anxiety. So a lot of depression is sort of anxiety fueled. So that you're saying they're more willing to go out, walk on the plank, kind of take that risk and feel comfortable with it, it seems. Yeah. Seems less. So is it, do you measure it by time spent on the plank? Yeah, less antisocial behavior, I guess you could call. So yeah, we do. We set up this elevated plus maze and then we have a whole video imaging system above it. We keep the animals as low stress as possible. We have the same person working with the animals so they're not experiencing different smells uh, and things like that. And the room is very, very quiet. Uh, we pay attention to circadian uh, light on, light off sort of things. So there's a lot of variables that need to be controlled. And then we image them 
in the absence of ketones and we see how much time they're like in the middle, in the open arm, in the closed arm. And our video camera system sort of can track all that. And we have various programs and algorithms that do all the calculations for, for various things. And then we do sort of a bunch of animals just on the standard high carb diet. And then what we've been doing is testing various ketogenic agents or various exogenous ketone and ketone formulas that would be administered just 30 minutes prior to being put in this elevated plus maze and being there for a couple hours. So, and then we'll, we'll track all that information and then we sort of, it's all done blinded. So we don't, we have one person who's usually two people, part of the project that's administering the agent and the person that does the analysis does not know what the animal is receiving. But we got a pretty robust effect with a few of the ketogenic agents on reducing this anxiety behavior. That's some new data that we just presented literally like a week ago, uh, less than a week ago in Budapest. And that's what I'm just returning back from now. So we want to follow up on that. And and we just used one dose. We need to determine what would be the optimal dose. There's, there's a lot of work that we still need to do to optimize that and maybe think about putting together a formula that could uh, be beneficial for people. Very, very cool. One of the ones you didn't mention is Parkinson's. Is that something? Yeah, there's um, a study, I think that was early study that was done by Dr. Theodore Van Italy. And uh, he did some work. And uh, Dr. Van Italy is like 96 years old. And we still communicate on the phone and, and through email. Uh, he was one of the original ketogenic diet researchers. He did a small sort of pilot study showing that people on a people with Parkinson's disease can follow a ketogenic diet. And then it had uh, being in a state of nutritional ketosis reduced the tremors associated with Parkinson's disease and, and prevented some of the symptoms. So not a cure, but could help manage some of the symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease. And there really hasn't been a good follow-up study to that. I know there was, so there's the ketone ester that was developed at NIH and, and studied at Oxford, there was that group had a clinical trial open, but I think they might have had some problems recruiting people into that clinical trial because uh, I don't, you know, that, that opened a few years ago. So I know there was a, a clinical trial looking at the effect of exogenous ketones on Parkinson's disease. And if we weren't tied up with so many other projects, I would be jumping on that because I was able to observe in uh, Alzheimer's patients when they took like a medium chain triglyceride supplement or even an exogenous ketones, they would have pretty, pretty dramatic tremors. And some Parkinson's disease-like symptoms can be manifested in people with Alzheimer's, especially advanced Alzheimer's. And was able to observe and also got feedback from caretakers that when they induce a state of nutritional ketosis, it, it really rapidly stops the tremors associated with that. So that needs to be followed up on. And, and we really need to, funding needs to be, you know, the pharmaceutical industry kind of dictates a lot of what studies are done because you need a big, a strong financial backing on top of a university or a chain of universities that supports this kind of research on top of a review board in IRB that will prove this kind of this kind of, of research too and using these nutritional 
metabolic substances. So there are many hurdles that need to happen. And then you have to recruit patients on top of that and convince them that it's not a drug, but it's a nasty tasting food that could potentially benefit you. And they're like, well, it's easier for if a child, like a son or a daughter is bringing in their mom, who's typically a situation, you know, 80 or 90 years old, and they're not going to want to try to formulate some nasty tasting shake to do that is much easier just to give them a pill. So these are some of the things that you see uh, or some of the feedback you get from people who are trying to implement these kinds of nutritional protocols in patients. There's a lot of hurdles. And a lot of people will ask me, it was like, well, if it's so effective, well, how come science is not using the ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones to treat all these disorders? Well, I could write a book on the reasons why, but nutritional research especially is so hard to do because nutrition is really tied into, it's a lifestyle thing. And getting institutional support, getting the expertise needed, ensuring that patients are following through and complying with the protocol, you know, all these things are different, is hard to do. So a supplement is in theory a lot easier, but we're at the very initial stages because these are just new entities that are just just developed. Right. It's only two, it's two and a half years you've had the ketone salts, for instance, and uh, the esters a bit longer? Uh, a little bit more than that. Yeah, so I would say ketone esters were actually developed probably about 20 years ago, if you look into the animal literature. And then they're kind of like dropped because it was thought that they're very expensive to produce. They taste like jet fuel. And a lot of the, some of the people that originally developed these things, like Henry Bruningrabber, he's like a hardcore metabolic physiologist scientist who develops a lot of remarkable things, but kind of drops it and then moves on to the next thing. <laughs> and then is also sharing the chair of his department and running a billion other things at the same time. So I dug up some of this research and realized, I was like, wow, why didn't anyone follow up on this? And then I saw some of the work that was funded by DARPA showing that they were kind of the secret project. They were using these ketone esters for warfighter performance enhancement and found some patents and some, some files on that. And I was like, well, well, this is what I need to explore for the use of CNS oxygen toxicity. Because So not only can the ketones potentially mitigate the oxygen seizures, and I knew that the ketogenic diet was like, you know, super effective, even independent of the etiology of the seizures, it, it tends to work, which is really remarkable. But instead of giving an anticonvulsant drug to a warfighter, which can dull your senses and impair your physical and cognitive performance, you could be giving an anticonvulsant neuroprotective substance that enhances physical and cognitive performance. So it just seemed like a win-win situation. So I rapidly kind of grasped this idea and just went into this like manic state of writing grants and writing proposals and digging up all the research. And then I was like calling my program officer and I was like, you need to hear this information, what I'm going to tell you. So we actually had like a, a little meeting at, the, at our university and, and he was like, we have to do this. So he was very generous to fund some of the initial basic science proof of concept research that demonstrated the efficacy of this ketone ester in mitigating oxygen toxicity. And it, it worked better than anything we had ever tested or that anybody had ever tested, even drug-wise. So that 
sparked that's going back in 2009 or 10 now. And from there, we've been, I'm really big on safety because I'm really scared about bringing something to market that could potentially harm someone. And I know there's been some discussion out there about the quote unquote dangers of a racemic beta hydroxybutyrate salt. So people need to recognize the difference between someone's opinion and scientific fact, right? So the scientific fact is that racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate salts have been used for decades for treating a disorder called MAD, so which is multiple acetyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency, right? And I get emails from the patients that, or from the parents that are treating their kids with this, and it's like a miracle for them. And I also get emails from parents that are treating their kids with glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome with racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate, uh, sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is actually a prescription you can get in, uh, in Europe. But they're also using these commercially available ketone salt products, which would be the ones you might be familiar with as Ketocana from Keto Sports. Prove It makes Keto OS. Forevergreen makes uh, Ketopia. And uh, the Kegenics product is actually one I'm testing now. It is a really excellent exogenous ketone product. This is so this idea of which was talked about in, in various podcasts, I think in uh, Bulletproof Podcast and Ben Greenfields, that racemic sodium beta hydroxybutyrate was dangerous and ineffective is an opinion, and there's no science to back it up. And if you go back and listen to the podcast, you'll hear the speaker actually reference no actual studies. So, and has intellectual property kind of supporting uh, the non-racemic. So that needs to be sort of acknowledged and appreciated. What is appreciated from my end, the science backing up the, the efficacy and the safety is really profound. Like I've sat on expert panels to approve some of these molecules and no toxicologist or physiologist could find any evidence that racemic which is, you know, the DL version of beta-hydroxybutyrate was dangerous in any way. For example, sort of a parallel to that would be, and we talked a little bit about lactate. So Ringer's lactate, if you're a medical doctor or you like a, a combat doc on the field and you're treating soldiers that are, have a loss of blood or you're in the emergency room, just talking to ER docs, use what's called Ringer's lactate. And that's racemic lactate. So L-lactate would be the natural lactate that you find sort of in your body. And the DL would be an enantiomer or like a mirror image of that lactate. And both of those lactate molecules get metabolized to energy. So the same thing happens with ketones. So the D and the L version get metabolized to ATP. To energy. And a lot of the metabolism has been worked out with very elegant tracer-based fate association studies, actually by, by Dr. Bruningrabber at Case Western. And we've been using lactate ringers. Uh, lactate has been used in millions of combat troops and in emergency rooms. So if there was a danger to using a racemic metabolite, <laughs> there would be a lot of a lot of dead bodies around, and that has not been the case. Actually, it's FDA approved, it's, it's widely used and accepted, and it was even studied the difference between L-lactate and racemic lactate before it became just standard of care. Actually, it was looked into, and it had the exact same effect. So if you use the racemic versus the L-lactate, it had the same effect at preserving the metabolic activity of the tissues and, and being protective in that way. 
So I think uh, that needs to be acknowledged that when statements are made, <laughs> that they could be opinion and, and not validated by, by scientific fact. So the, the ketone supplements that are on the market now that I'm aware of are very safe. And from feedback, they're very effective. I don't support any particular ketone supplement that's out there. I've tested all of them and they tend to elevate my beta hydroxybutyrate in the 0.5 to 1 millimolar range for one dose. So for me to really get, to really boost my ketone levels up, I have to take like a packet and a half or a dose and a half which I can tolerate pretty well. But I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the products that are out there. And I've hoped to work with these companies, hoping that they will fund research to support the further development and evolution of these products for different applications. Excellent, excellent. Uh, th thanks for going through that because that's something I had my eye on as well and wanted to get some, some more facts too. Something else that was thrown out, I mean, a couple of things was that the racemix were less efficient or, or were ineffective. And also that we also have all of the MCTs, which people are using to kick up their ketones as well. We have the C8s, the C10s, the MCTs. So there's various products around that. Another statement that was said was like, they were undesirable and you should avoid those as well, unless you really had to take them. Like in, in a, for instance, if you had Parkinson's and it was okay to take them, but otherwise you shouldn't really be taking them. And a lot of people are taking these <laughs> right now. There's a bulletproof brain octane. I'm sure a lot of people are taking that. There's uh, Keto Sports has got their own product. I've been taking for a long time personally also. So I don't know if you've got any comments on that. Yeah, I study a lot of very expensive <laughs> exogenous ketone products. But the more I look into medium chain triglycerides, especially the, the C8 oil, which is sort of digested and assimilated much different than long chain fatty acids. When you consume it, it basically perfuses the liver. I mean, it goes right to the liver via hepatic portal circulation. It goes right to the liver and is burned as energy. So they're poorly esterified, which means they're not re-esterified back and, and packaged into chylomicrons and like long-chain fatty acids. And once they reach the liver, it's basically an obligate oxidation, right? That it's like almost the medium chains are almost completely oxidized to ketone bodies. And some of them will spill into the bloodstream because we find them actually in brain tissue and other tissues. But it's independent of the various transporters, too. For, for the medium chain triglycerides to get into the mitochondria, there's various uh, CPT1, for example, is not needed to get the uh, MCT into the mitochondria. So they bypass a lot of these rate limiting steps. And you consume them. It goes right to the liver. You generate a lot of beta-hydroxybutyrate. And some of it gets into the bloodstream. So you have the combination of ketones and medium-chain triglycerides going right to the mitochondria. And that can be very therapeutic and beneficial for many different disorders. You got to realize that the person sort of making that statement that you know MCTs are dangerous or ineffective or whatever sort of has some, some underlying personal interest in advancing the commercialization of his particular ketone, exogenous ketone. And that needs to be appreciated and understood. From our perspective, we're interested in testing that particular ketone formulation and 20 other and finding out the truth, finding out which is most effective, which is most safe. Uh, when it comes to the racemic and the statement that racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate is not as effective, that we have not found that out to be the case. Uh, actually, the first ketone ester that we studied for oxygen toxicity was a monoester of the R 
beta-hydroxybutyrate we have formulated, and that did not prevent CNS oxygen toxicity, which actually was very strange to me. But And then the more research I did, I found out that you needed to elevate both acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood to sort of mimic sort of some of the what happens naturally, physiologically, and that the acetoacetate through perhaps spontaneous decarboxylation to acetone, or maybe it has its own metabolic effect independently, the elevation of acetoacetate was absolutely critical. It also in the presence of beta-hydroxybutyrate, but it was absolutely critical to elevate both ketone bodies to get the anti-convulsant effect. And we showed that, and we published that in American Journal of Physiology and showed all the pharmacokinetics and showed the, all the seizure work with that. And so we screened a lot of agents and found out the particular ketone ester that we found out to be most effective was 1,3-butanediol acetoacetate diester. So it was 1,3-butanediol that was racemic, so it would make racemic beta-hydroxybutyrate. But even the, the non sort of what's called the non-physiological enantiomer, gets broken down and converted to acetyl-CoA, and some of that goes back to the physiological enantiomer. So it all gets broken down and metabolized, similar to Ringer's lactate, which is used in millions of, of patients. But the, the important thing about that particular molecule is that when it's consumed orally, it gets hydrolyzed and it rapidly liberates the acetoacetate. And then the beta, the 1,3-butanediol gets metabolized in the liver and elevates beta-hydroxybutyrate. So you have both ketone bodies elevated in the blood. And we find that it's absolutely critical to get a certain level of acetoacetate to get the anticonvulsant effect. So we're moving on to studies to use. Oh, one thing I didn't talk about was uh, Angelman syndrome, which is characterized by impairment of motor function and also drug-resistant seizures. And it's extremely effective in an animal model of Angelman syndrome. And if you look, if you just do Angelman syndrome in the ketogenic diet, you come across some case reports showing that it basically puts Angelman syndrome patients into remission, at least or seizures. So it's highly efficient for that. So the first ketone ester we studied was this R-enantiomer, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and it was not effective. So it was actually the racemic version of a ketone ester that was most efficacious in ours. But we're interested in sort of exploring all different pathologies and finding out which one. So we have not found out that the R-enantiomer is any more efficacious for any other disorder than the racemic. I think that's important to acknowledge. And, and we also found that medium-chain triglycerides tend to formulate really well with these exogenous ketones. Not only are they carriers, but we, we think they enhance the transport across membranes and they improve the pharmacokinetic profile, too, of many of the ketone salts. So when it's formulated with MCTs, which have the nice advantage of also being, being ketogenic. And one of the benefits of racemic the other enantiomer, so there's D and there L, the L enantiomer tends to impact the liver in a way that reduces hepatic gluconeogenesis. So you have this hypoglycemic effect that is very well characterized by our lab and other people's labs. Right. So you're saying as ketones go up, the glucose goes down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more pronounced with the racemic and we don't know why that is. Do you think that is that beneficial to some of the applications more than others? 
weight loss, for example? And- yeah, for weight loss, maybe for seizures too. We know that reducing glycolytic metabolism can be beneficial for seizures, but also for cancer. So we're doing, as I mentioned, we have a pretty active cancer research program. And the lower we can get glucose or glucose response to a meal, the lower we can reduce that, the better therapeutic efficacy we think the agent will have. And if we formulate the agent with food, so every time so our animal models will eat the food, they're getting a dose of it. And that's what we've been Instead of injecting it into the animal or gavaging it in the mouth for our cancer studies, we actually take these ketogenic agents and formulate it to about 10 to 20% of the weight of the food. And then we count the macronutrient ratios and things like that. And then they eat it. And every time sort of they're eating the food, they're getting a dose of ketones with the glucose because we actually do a lot of our studies formulating it with a high carb diet because we want to find out the therapeutic effects of the particular agent and distinguish that between the ketogenic diet. But we also published a study in PLOS One about a year ago where we formulated the ketogenic diet with the ketogenic agents. And we did this with a ketone ester and found that it further enhanced the anti-cancer effect of ketogenic diet. Uh-huh. Okay. I've got a few questions about this. Um, like there's some MCT powders on the market which combine glucose. Me coming from a ketogenic perspective, that's not something I want to take with the MCT powder. There's other powders which don't have the glucose. Is there anything to that? Is it anything to think about or is it not really, really an issue? Because there's this effect of the ketones pushing down the glucose anyway. Would it have zero effect? I haven't tested it myself yet. Yeah, the MCT powders on the market, like Quest Nutrition or... No, not Quest. They, they don't. It's basically the generic ones. There's, there's some cheaper ones, uh, generic ones, where they'll put glucose syrup in it and some other glycemic ingredients. Yeah. With my interest in the ketogenic diet and kind of staying ketosis, I would rather get my carbohydrates from things like uh, vegetables and salads and blueberries and dark chocolate basically encompasses my <laughs> my carb intake there. So I would avoid that. I, a staple product that I use, I mean, I have it right by me right now, is the Quest MCT oil powder. And I kind of did a little bit of beta testing for them as they brought that to market. We went kind of sort of back and forth and I tested I tested that a lot. I consumed a lot of that and did tons of blood work and got to the point where like, I was really impressed with the product. And there's not too many products that I, I consider like staple products, maybe about a half dozen like total that I like keep with me all the time. That MCT oil powder is great. It's very versatile. You could use it in baking. You could I put it in my coffee. Uh, you can add it to protein shakes to further boost the, the ketogenic profile of your shakes and things like that. So, so you take that with your, and I take this stuff as well. I've got it right next to me as well <laughs> in my coffee. Actually, it's a Yerba Mate. With, uh, it works with Yerba Mate as well. Yep. What I was going to say is like, uh, you take that on top of your ketogenic diet. I think an interesting thing when this, like I talk to people, they're taking the exogenous ketones or the MCT, the MCT powder. They're taking that with, as you say, kind of like a normal diet or called a bodybuilder's diet where it's high protein or, um, and they're not doing a keto diet. And then there's other people who are interested in getting keto, but finding it difficult. They're kind of using it to ease into the keto diet. So there is a couple of different applications people using for different things. I'm just wondering what your ideas are on those scenarios. Yeah, if I put the Quest, you know, uh, MCT oil into my coffee or shakes or things like that, and 
I generally try to avoid liquid meals because liquid meals digest totally different. Like the only liquid <laughs> meal that I had, I guess it would you, I would call it a, a meal, I guess would be my coffee. And I would put in some coconut oil and MCT on top of that. Occasionally I'll put in butter or coconut cream. I've been using a lot of coconut cream actually, instead of whole cream. The benefit is that I can elevate my protein a little bit more. And if I have, I generally eat two meals a day now that I'm kind of home and not traveling or whatever. And my, the meal in the evening is about twice the calorie count. So I get about a third of my calories, food calories in the morning and about two thirds in the evening. But I get a lot of fat calories during the day, I guess, because I'll have, I'll make my coffee and kind of whip it up and then bring it in a thermos and kind of drink that. And then maybe I'll have a little bit of mostly in the morning. And then I'll have a little kicker in the afternoon, maybe that fat bomb, I guess, if you want to call it that. And occasionally I'll take some exogenous ketones too during the day. Uh, if I'm testing different products, it just adds to my total fat macronutrient ratio. And so I probably get with the coconut cream, the butter and the MCT oil powder, probably get about an extra hundred grams of fat from that. So that allows me to eat a little less fat with my meal in the evening. And that makes it maybe a little bit more palatable because I could add some more protein. And I feel on a typical schedule, I will do my physical activity sort of in the evening. And I like to couple that with like a little bit higher protein intake. Right. So using the exogenous ketones or the uh, MCTs to offset gluconeogenesis, is that kind of the idea? Yep. And I think... I eat, uh, like this morning, I had uh, like three or four eggs cooked in coconut oil. And I had some, like either usually sardines or, or oysters or chicken or some kind of or steak or something from the night before. And I'll have uh, a little bit of green vegetables cooked in, in fat. And that'll be my uh, breakfast. And it'll be roughly, probably under, still under 1,000 calories, somewhere around 800 to 1,000. And then I'll get... 1500 to 2000 calories in the evening, which is, and you know, during the day, I might even get like an extra thousand calories from 500 to a thousand calories just of fat or ketones during the day. And I stay semi fasted. So if I eat, you know, six or seven in the morning, I feel the best and my ketones get highest between like 3 p.m. and like 6 or 7 p.m. Okay. What levels of ketones would you have then? I say high, but it's not really that high. I would in the morning I wake up, it's maybe like one, one point zero, sometimes point five if I ate more blueberries or chocolate the night before. And then by right now or approaching noon, it would start to creep up about one point five. And then towards the end of the day, my work day, uh, I'm usually approaching about a, a two point five or somewhere around there, two to two point five. And if I'm lucky, you know, I budgeted my time where I can go to the gym. So I, I will typically be working out. But even if I go home, I'll do some stuff at home, take my dog for a walk, do some sprints, something like that. And that's when I feel most energetic, when I'm kind of fasted and in ketosis. Right. And you're saying your blood ketones would be about 2.5 or something like that. And you'd feel, yeah. you'd feel that's your most energetic or you feel best at that time. I tried to subjectively do this too. So basically... I would carry my meter and I would be like, when do I feel most energetic, lucid? And then I would measure my glucose and ketones at that point. And I find that basically if my glucose is about 3.5 millimolar and my ketones are about 
like 1.5 to 2 is when I personally feel the best as far as energetic. So that would be a glucose ketone index. We use the Tom Seifert's calculation of about 2, right? So when you're approaching 1, yeah, you're really starting to get into that therapeutic range. But I think for all intensive purposes, keeping for the normal person, if you keep between like 4 to 2, that would be, it would be very abnormal for someone in normal society to even approach that. If you're hitting that, you're, you're doing really well. And that's, you're in an altered metabolic state. And if you can sustain that, I think you're going to get a lot of sort of therapeutic and performance benefits from that. So two to four on the um, GKI, the glucose ketone index yeah. from Thomas Seafried. Yeah. Which we covered in his episode in the past. Yeah. The only time I've got below one is when I've been fasting and uh, my day, my days, cause I've tracked full days as well. Like every, every half an hour I've tracked, it looks pretty similar to yours. I mean, so I was just wondering, like, because I've heard you say before that over five millimolar in terms of ketones has some metabolic downsides. So I was wondering about the ranges. Are there ranges people shoot for? So between this two to four, basically, and you don't really want to be lower, right? Say on the GKI, you don't want to be going down to one in a, unless you're fasting or doing some pulse like that. Yeah, unless you're really sort of in a total fasted, calorie-restricted, deprived state, I think between five and six, I think there was reports in a 60-day fast up to eight millimolar. So that may be beneficial there for just maintaining that energetic flow to the brain. But if you're on an isocaloric diet and not calorie-restricted, I think staying between one and two is probably good if you're mildly calorie restricted or maybe towards the end of an intermittent fasting, the fasting portion of an intermittent fasting day approaching three may be optimal. And I base this upon thousands of blood measurements that I've taken and literally hundreds of looking through hundreds of sort of blood measurements from other people and between one to three millimolar I think is good. And we've even seen in animals, once you dose them up to about over five, they start hyperventilating. You create a mild metabolic acidosis that needs to be compensated for so that you get the hyperventilation. You start getting, they start getting even, even drunk and sedated when you really start getting up there, signs of ketoacidosis. And in cases where they're sedentary, that could be the reason. If you're approaching five or six millimolar and you're in an all-out sprint, you're using that. So maybe in the case of, of an athlete approaching the higher numbers could be beneficial if you train for that. But say you're not trained for that and you dose up really high, it's given your body like a foreign, your body kind of perceives it as a foreign acidic metabolic substrate that it has to neutralize. So you got to dump the your bicarb to compensate. You have respiratory renal compensation that needs to, to compensate for that. And, you know, I just had this sort of discussion with some people I, I really respect in metabolism and physiology, and they were making the argument that anything above four or five is really going to be sort of toxic to the body. And I didn't argue against that, but what we all sort of agreed upon, and there's some pretty sharp minds in the, in the room, that anywhere between one and three w- was probably optimal. 
And as you know, staying in like two to three range is really hard to do with diet, but staying in a 1.0 range is pretty easy to do with a diet. Like I do a modified Atkins or modified ketogenic diet, and that's pretty easy. And if I add a little bit of exogenous ketones or some C8 on top of that, I can easily boost that to two, 2.5. And I think that would give me a metabolic advantage, a performance advantage, a cognitive advantage. I'm pretty, pretty sure about that. So that, that's what's exciting to me. So not using sort of exogenous ketones in the place of a low-carb diet, but you might be able to do that too. And I'm actually thinking about doing an experiment of getting off of my ketogenic diet for a period of time, not going super high-carb, but just being out of a state of nutritional ketosis and then adding supplements back in and then doing some blood work and seeing, seeing what happens there. I just haven't gotten around to doing it because I enjoy eating ketogenic so much. Right. Once you get into it for a while, it's like you don't have to eat very often. It's, it's almost just... like I dread doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. So I was testing some of the supplements, the different supplements, and I don't actually think I did it very well. But what I was doing, I was eating in the evening, a, a basically a high carb meal, lots of rice to put myself out of ketosis. And I did this for about a week and then tested different supplements in the morning. I mean, for the first reason, I don't think it was a great control because I am basically keto adapted now and I tend to pop straight back into ketosis uh, relatively quickly. So, I mean, I'd like your feedback on that, whether it's a decent control or maybe I'm I'm not no good at as a control because I've been just keto adapted for a while. And also maybe me, I'd have to go for a few days carving it to make it a bit more realistic. What, what are your thoughts on that? If you were trying to like do some kind of normal, because I mean, the first thing is that going back to your point about exogenous ketones you're saying like if someone just takes it straight off as some people are doing right now and they're on a carb uh, they've been on a carb diet the whole time then they can't necessarily utilize those because they're not keto or fat adapted how long does that take and should people be taking a lot of these when they haven't really had that much exposure do they have to take them over a period of a week or longer in order to start getting more and more benefits from actually taking them yeah that's a good question so interestingly we can use exogenous ketones, even if we're not keto adapted at all. And that was our first study that we did for CNS oxygen toxicity was actually rats eating a standard rodent chow, which is like 60% carbohydrates or 70% even. And we gave a single dose, not even feeding it chronically, a single dose 30 minutes prior to doing a deep oxygen dive. And it worked remarkably well. And that really surprised me. So, well, taking a little bit of a step back, we use actually the R enantiomer of the beta-hydroxybutyrate and it didn't work. <laughs> but, but then when we found out the ester that, that did work, that particular compound worked remarkably well. That kind of changed my thinking because I approached it with the understanding or the bias that you really need to be keto adapted. But if you are adapted to burning fat and ketones for fuel, what has been shown is that you do upregulate the transporters and the enzymes associated with ketone metabolism. So you will theoretically be deriving more benefit from exogenous ketones if you have been previously adapted to a ketogenic diet. And I think from a practical standpoint, say you're on a ketogenic diet and you choose to transition to eating carbs for some instant, for some reason, and then you throw ketones back in, since you're adapted to a ketogenic diet already, I think you'll use those ketones more efficiently, even by following a, a carbohydrate-based diet. And we have some evidence to show, to indicate that glucose disposal is enhanced in the presence of ketones. So it may actually be enhancing insulin sensitivity. 
the glucose goes down. If you have animals eating a high-carb diet and you bolus exogenous ketones, the glucose goes down remarkably low. I mean, it's like much more than you even get with something like metformin. And what we don't know why that's happening, I'm looking at, we want to look at liver metabolomic profile. I think it could be influencing the liver in some way and maybe decreasing hepatic glucose output. Because really it's your liver that dictates, you know, your blood glucose, you know, every, it's kind of all happening in the liver. So if you kind of turn down gluconeogenesis in the liver, you would see a decrease in blood glucose. But also if you're enhancing insulin sensitivity, you would be facilitating glucose disposal and peripheral tissues with ketones. And I know Dr. Richard Veach at the NIH has kind of written about that and, and suggested that ketones actually do enhance glucose uptake and, and insulin sensitivity. So, yeah, so people kind of get the question, like, what if you throw ketones on top of carbohydrates? Like, what, what are the cells going to use? I, I think the cells will use what's available to them. And we know that um, the brain might not be able to use the certain types of fatty acids, though they can use MCTs. If you have glucose and ketones in the blood, your cells, your muscle cells, your brain cells will be using both fuels and there's some evidence to suggest that it will be using the glucose more efficiently in the presence of ketones because we know ketones can lower reactive oxygen species. Excess ROS production can decrease insulin sensitivity and sort of cause protein, nucleic, and lipid peroxidation that can inhibit glucose transporter processes like even translocation of glucose transporters to the membrane or, or even PDH complex could be sensitive to the redox state of the cell. And ketones tend to normalize or prevent an oxidative environment that could potentially impair glucose transport and, and insulin sensitivity. There's such a wealth of information in this area. Like It's not like ketones are a panacea, but there's just so many applications we, we've spoken about today. So I could go on talking to you for absolute forever. I'm conscious of your time, of course. So, so I wanted to talk to kind of round off a bit about what you do more in terms of tracking, optimizing yourself and what you think's effective. For instance, in terms of blood ketones, you said you're tracking your blood ketones. Have you used uh, the other methods, the urine or the uh, breath method, which the strips for the blood can be a little bit uh, inaccessible? In the UK, they are. In the US, sometimes. And also, they're really expensive. Like, the price kind of varies. So, I'm sure you have your own ways of getting them. But for everyone else, it can be a little bit difficult, particularly in the UK, I found. What do you think of the breath? Like, the, there's the ketonics, uh, looking at the acetone instead. Do you think that correlates with the blood ketones and it, it's an okay way to try and optimize or, or not? Yeah, it's a good question. I get this frequently. What I would say, the breath, at, if you're measuring moderate to high on a breath acetone meter, you're definitely in ketosis. I like it. I, I wish it was more quantitative because I'm a numbers guy. I think we're all sort of, what's your number? So there was sort of like ketone competition in the lab and my friends, like, you know, what's your ketones today? So we, we like numbers. And I wish the unit could be designed. I believe Michaelis, uh, who's working on that, uh, is sort of working on a, a sort of a, more of a quantified meter. So I like it. And I think it's great for sort of kids that are trying to manage their epilepsy because breath acetone has correlated with seizure control. So if you give this to a kid and he blows in it and he sees colors and he gets excited, I think that's great. So it's a tool, it's giving you a relative level, but it's not a precise level. 
but it's also kind of a snapshot of your level of ketosis over the last couple hours, right? So your blood beta hydroxybutyrate can change. Like I'm standing here in front of my desk and talking to you and relatively sedentary. But if I was to go take a brisk walk on the other side of campus, which I do occasionally to get things signed, I'll come back and measure my ketones and it'll be cut in half. It'll go from two to one or below one just from brisk walk where it should be increased, right? Because I'm should be mobilizing fat and burning fat, but I've burnt those ketones for fuel during my movement. So then it goes into glycogen. I've seen this before and I didn't understand it. That's why I'm pretty curious. Yeah, well, it's burned as fuel. So ketones are substrates, so they're going to be burned up as fuel. And you also, yes, you may mobilize glycogen from the liver. So your glucose can actually go up. You might have some lactic acid from your muscles and through the quarry cycle, it goes back to the liver and you get some some glucose in the blood. You're the stress, the sympathetic nervous system from kind of moving and running across traffic and navigating or whatever, doing your walk. That, that can contribute. So what I really found that's most important is that you need to be like completely calm and sedentary when you make these measurements to get accurate measurements to prevent the variability. Like we, we sort of have this issue with our rodent studies is that we need to pull the food from them for about four to six to eight hours before just to normalize the blood glucose because you have some that are nibbling on food, some that have gorged, others that haven't eaten. So the glucose is going to be all over so to standardize and sort of normalize the glucose, you, you need to remove their food for a little bit and then the numbers are tighter, right? And the same thing applies for if you're measuring ketones that you need to, uh, to just, especially blood ketones, you need to be fairly sedentary to do it. And I really like the urine ketone strips get a bad rap, but I like the urine ketone strips and they're still used by Johns Hopkins as sort of in their kids. So before you go spending a lot of money on getting ketone strips for the meter, you want to first confirm that you're actually in ketosis with on the urine strip. And it's like if you're registering 15 or 40 milligrams per deciliter on the ketone strip, then it's like, okay, at least if I take a blood measurement now, I'm going to register something on my blood meter and it's going to be like, okay, like I'm, I'm in ketosis. So I wouldn't, I remember the other meter, I think it's the Novamax meter will just give you this annoying kind of low, like you're low. It won't even be your number on it. And one person went out and bought like a, a couple hundred dollars worth of strips and had like 17 lows on there. And it's come to find out either just eating too much protein or they think it's okay to drink fruit juice or something on it. I forget what the situation was. I was like, no, well, first change your diet and then go out and get some urine ketone strips. And then once you're actually in ketosis on the urine strip, then go back to the blood meter and come to find out they tweaked their diet a little bit. They did it till they were measuring ketones on the urine strip. And then they went to the blood meter and bang, you know, they get 1.2 and they get all excited. So they could have <laughs> saved a lot of money. <laughs> right, right. Because the urine gets a bad rep because it stops working once you get more keto adapted. But when you're first on a ketogenic diet and you're trying to like check that, that's not going to happen, right? Hydration state too also plays a role. And less ketones will spill into the urine over time because you'll conserve them as fuel. The transporters sort of change a little bit. But if your hydration, if you're drinking like lots of water, like those kind of people who like carry water around with them and drinking, like your urine ketones may register pretty low. Sometimes I wake up dehydrated and I will check my urine ketones will be quite high, whereas my blood ketones will be quite low. So that's just an indication of my hydration status. 
And it's also a snapshot of what your ketones were over the last four, five, six hours, because that urine is collecting in your bladder over time. So it's sort of a snapshot of what's happening through the course of the day, whereas your blood ketone is a snapshot of your ketone level at that point in time. Right. Like just round off with a a bit of information more about you and and what you do these days. Um, In terms of tracking things, like, because it seems like you've tracked a lot yourself, are there things that have stood out for you overall time that you've tracked yourself and you found really useful? You got useful insights from any quants or anything and you've kind of changed something you do in your life because of that? Yeah, I think initially when I started doing the ketogenic diet, it was very dairy based. I was taking in lots of cream, uh, a stick or two two sticks of butter a day. <laughs> so I had a really high intake of dairy fat, probably about 200 plus grams of fat per day of dairy. And my LDL went up pretty high and my triglycerides went down a little bit, but not, not like really low. And then I started replacing some of the dairy fat or the whole cream with coconut cream and just using a little more coconut oil, getting more avocado in for my fats. And now I still get dairy fat. I buy a sour cream that has live cultures in it and I probably get about 50 to 70 grams of 50 grams of fat per day from dairy instead of like 250 grams of fat or 200 grams of fat, which I was getting initially. And my lab tests have improved, I guess you would say. I think my insulin sensitivity is better. My glucose I can get lower glucose numbers now after eliminating some dairy. My triglycerides are really low now. They stay like 40s and 50 to 36, I think one time it was. My HDL is improved and better and it's really high. It's like 90 something. My LDL went from being really high to kind of normal, but normal high now, which I think is completely normal and actually maybe even optimal. My IGF-1 levels are really low now compared to when I was on dairy. So I think dairy may have been contributing a little bit to some insulin resistance, or maybe I was just getting a surplus amount of calories or whatever. My CRP levels also are the lowest now than they've ever been. I mean, it's like 0.1 or 0.2 or something like that. Right. Basically nothing that's at the bottom of the range. Yeah. It's like totally bottomed out and I just feel better. So if I eat a lot of dairy, I do wake up a little bit slightly congested, a little bit stuffy in my nose. It's not bad. I wouldn't call it like allergies and it could be due to allergies or whatever. But uh, eliminating that has sort of helped, uh, not eliminating, but reducing the amount of dairy. I don't get in a whole lot of dairy protein. So maybe a slice of cheese here and there, but I, I sort of limit that too. And I limit like sort of casein and I don't take in whey protein anymore. So the dairy that I get is primarily dairy fat. And I was actually thinking about, I get very little butter, but I was going to switch to ghee even and do some clarified butter. So the triglycerides, I would say for people to look at, for physiological biomarkers, your heart rate, your blood pressure, sleep is an important one. I wear the Fitbit charged when it tells me my, uh, it's really fun to look at, you know, my heart rate during the course of the day and uh, my sleep and those sorts of things. I have a Dexcon that I'm going to put in and I want to... Is that the latest one? Is it a four or uh, is it five? Yeah, the five. I, I, I know Peter Atier has been playing with that. Yeah, well. yeah, the, the, the five, I think it is. So I've just been traveling, so I didn't, I, I just wanted to wait till I was like 
kind of put in one spot and then I can, I can test it. So I'm interested in trying that and maybe working with some companies too, to do a glucose and ketone sort of Dexcon, hoping to try that. Yeah. So that, that would definitely fit into your show. Yeah. Quantified self. So if I get some data for that, that'd be good. But yeah, as far as looking at physical biomarkers, you want to look at blood pressure, heart rates, sleep, and all these things improved when I got on a ketogenic diet. And and I think there are various reasons for that. And the lab tests, the simple ones are probably the most beneficial. Triglycerides are the things that I look at the most. My HDL, I think, is important and CRP and, of course, your blood glucose. If you're keeping glucose levels between 60 and 80 and doing that pretty much all the time, everything else is going to be good. <laughs> That's what I find. So you said you did an insulin sensitivity. Was that the HOMA insulin resistance or was it something else? No, I didn't do that. I did the glucose okay. tolerance. The challenge. Yeah, I did like 50 grams, 75 and 100 grams, I think. I think that was over like four hours, the 100 gram ones. Yeah, you drink the nasty kind of syrupy glucose and and look at that. Yeah, I, I'm extremely insulin, insulin sensitive. I, I dispose of insulin or I dispose of glucose very fast. I can also get a little bit of a hypoglycemic effect. If I'm on a ketogenic diet and I go off of it, for example, and get some rice, if I have sushi or something like that, I will dip down into the, the low 50s and bounce back up again. So very, very insulin sensitive. Thanks for that. If you were to recommend one experiment, I'm pro- I can kind of guess what you're going to say. Someone should try to improve their body, whether it's health, performance, longevity, with the biggest payoff, what would that be? And how should they track it to make sure it's getting that payoff? So it depends on the person, really. I don't think low-carb ketogenic diets are ideal for people in their teens or early 20s and because they might be extremely insulin sensitive. So I know I have tons of friends and you know I've even measured their glucose levels and they have great, they stay pretty low, low glucose levels and they have adapted really well to a high carb diet and they wouldn't want to do a ketogenic diet. So maybe you're expecting that kind of answer as like <laughs> going to ketogenic diet. But uh, I think periodic fasting would be an important thing to do, but some, like I'm talking with some high level CEO people and they tell me, well, like I've been doing this anyway, because I'm so busy. I wake up and I just work all day and then just go home and eat at night. <laughs> and, uh, but if your pattern of eating, like my pattern of eating, I was obsessed with like eating every two hours, especially when I was really into lifting. And I felt I was, had this preoccupation with food, with meals, we're preparing my meals, carrying it with me. And I think it's very liberating to not have to do that and to realize that your performance energy levels are not going to tank if you eat one meal a day or you do fasting. And if you were to do kind of a short-term fast initially and to do that every once in a while, I think it not only is very good for your metabolic health and I think it's also good for your state of mind because it tells your body, it tells your your mind that you don't have to be sort of psychologically dependent upon food. I would go five or six hours and be like, I'm starving. I have to eat something. And I'm around people or have been around people that are like that. I mean, my wife is kind of like that. She's an incredible carb burner, but if we're like traveling and she's gone four or five hours without having a meal, she starts, I could see it in her mood and everything. Right. But but that's fine. I mean, we'll stop and get something to eat and I usually have coffee or something like that. But it, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to see 
And she sees it in me. She's like, how could you go this long and not, aren't you hungry? Like, what's wrong with you? But she understands it now because she's watched me do so many kind of tricks and everything. So if you're not a big fan of being hungry, if you're not a, a fan of having to like eat every two or three hours because you're hungry, I think doing some intermittent fasting would be a really good experiment for you to do. And Mark Madsen uh, I actually interviewed Mark Matson at the at IHMC. So I'm also a scientist, a research scientist at Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. And we interviewed Mark Matson. I think you did too, for uh, a podcast. And he really went into the benefits of intermittent fasting. And he's at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and if you get a chance, he gave a, a brilliant lecture presentation. If you go to IHMC lectures and look up Mark Matson, he gave a, a great talk on this. He talks about all the health benefits. So if you do embark, if your listeners embark on an intermittent fasting uh, experiment, it would be interesting for them to track their blood glucose levels and their ketone levels and also their triglycerides and their C-reactive protein. And I think in each one of those biomarkers, if you want to call them that, will improve with intermittent fasting. And I've seen it. All right. So you're saying the 16 hour window or one day, is that, that's what you said? Because you said short, fast. Do you mean like a one day, 16 hour, 20 hour? Or? Yeah, you could do like every other day eating. But I think the easiest thing to do for most people would be what I do if I do intermittent fasting, maybe once or twice a week now, like I eat two meals a day, but like once or twice a week, I'll eat one meal a day. And it varies depending on sort of what I'm doing in, in testing, but it'll be sort of 18 hours of fasting and six hours of eating. So for me, actually, I get home kind of late. So it ends up being about 20 hours of fasting and uh, four hours of uh, eating. And so it'd be like seven o'clock to like 11 o'clock at night. Right. And I've done it sort of water and abstained from putting fat into like my coffee and everything. And I've also done it what I would call fat fast. So I would put in some MCTs in my coffee and maybe get a ketone supplement during the day. And I would still call that a fast because it's basically non-glycemic. Yeah. It probably has very similar ketone and glucose effects. Yeah. And I actually find that that's kind of optimal. So I would call that sort of a modified intermittent fasting protocol where you would get in some fats and exogenous ketones during that fasting period and then I'm a little less hungry once I go into that eating window. And I think that's kind of good too. So I tend not to overeat that much in my body's kind of still strongly in a state of ketosis that I've probably enhanced a bit with the supplementation. And I'm not, it tends to dampen my appetite a little bit. So I'm not as ravenous, but I don't really generally get that ravenous anyway when I eat. But I would experiment with that, the intermittent fasting, I think it's so easy to do. I mean, intermittent fasting is easier to do than the ketogenic diet. That's what I find with people. So do an experiment, get some initial blood work, do read up about it, listen to Mark Madsen's talk on IHMC uh, website. You'll find it there. I'm sure there's a lot of blogs on the subject and do blood work before and three to four weeks after, and you'll see a pretty big effect, especially if six and eight weeks after. You'll see even bigger effects on your your lipid profile and, and metabolic biomarkers. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. That's a, that's a great one. Okay. So where should someone look first to learn more about your topic? Are there any good books or presentations on the subject you'd recommend if they want to learn more about the whole subject of ketones and, and ketosis? One of the go-to book that I recommend is Jeff Bullock's Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Performance. 
it's kind of like mandatory reading for, for students entering the lab just to get a handle on what the ketogenic diet is. The Ketogenic Diet Resource is a website maintained by a friend of mine, uh, Ellen Davis, and I think it has a lot of good information on it. If I maintain a website, just kind of throw up links on there, compile links on there called ketonutrition.org. And if you click on resources from the homepage, it'll take you to, there's dietary consultants, there's books, there's publications, and there's a list of podcasts and lectures on there on a variety of subjects that hit on all the, pretty much all the topics we've discussed. So, and you need to probably get on there and update it, but it's, it's relatively updated. I'll probably update that in the next month or two. And metabolic optimization too. So that's a, a website that I started with Travis Christofferson, who wrote the book Tripping Over the Truth, which is an excellent book that uh, covers sort of the metabolic theory of cancer. And Travis and I maintain the website Metabolic Optimization. And we have Tom Seyfried on. We've had Adrian Sheck and we've had uh, Bruce Ames actually was the first guy. And we're going to line up a bunch of other speakers on metabolism. So that's another area where they can look up information on these topics. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, you're active on Twitter. Where could people also connect with you and keep updated with what you're at? Yeah, I, I probably post on Twitter maybe once or twice a week. So not like super active, but Facebook, I probably post a, lo a little bit more. My page is kind of maxed out. <laughs> I got 500 or 5,000 Kind of people follow me. So I'll probably create kind of like a more of a public page, but you can still follow me because I post things kind of open to the public. And I will post usually one or two studies per day or podcasts or lectures per day on my Facebook page, which should be pretty easy to find. And it's always sort of topics relevant to the interests or the topics that we, we covered today. And sometimes I post, I kind of dual post on Twitter and Facebook, important things that pop up as far as studies and lectures and things like that. Excellent. Also, of course, we'll put links to everything you've mentioned here in the show notes. Is there anyone besides yourself? You've already mentioned a few people, uh, but it was, was there any you would pull out and you'd recommend if people wanted to learn more about the subject? You know, are there some other people you'd recommend also? Yeah, my colleagues. I mean, there's so many of them. I try to stay very active in collaboration. And I, th I think it's really good for scientists to collaborate to help kind of get their work out there. Also, to get other people to validate the findings that you did in the lab. So I know you've had Thomas Seyfried is a great friend and colleague of mine. Adrian Sheck is a fantastic scientist and kind of a pioneer in ketogenic diets and, and moving the ketogenic diet into clinical trials at Barrow Neurological Institute. There's some of the mentors that even got me into this, this field would be uh, Dr. Eric Kosoff. He's a neurologist uh, at Johns Hopkins, and, and he's been a pioneer in using the ketogenic diet for kids with epilepsy. So, uh, look him up, Dr. Jung Ro, who's sort of a, a neuroscientist and, and pediatrician. He was originally at Barrow Neurological Institute, and he was the first scientist I ever connected with to discuss this, kind of the use of the ketogenic nutrition for oxygen toxicity. And Dr. Richard Veach, I mean, he had a profound influence on me when I first sort of got into this area of ketogenic diets and discovered exogenous ketones it was his reviews on the subject. So if you just look up some of his reviews on ketones and the therapeutic effects of ketones 
they're really good. So yeah, uh, Susan Massino has been really supportive of our work and she's doing some really innovative work looking at the effects of the ketogenic diet on adenosine. And adenosine is a neuroprotective substance that's elevated, has anti-seizure, anti-convulsant neuroprotective effects. So we actually have a lot of these speakers will be coming to our metabolic therapeutics conference, which will be held either the last week in January or the first week in February. And we had a number of speakers. We had Eugene Fine was there. We had Colin Champ. We had David Ludwig. We had David Diamond, uh, who's a colleague of mine here at USF, talk about uh, cholesterol and statins. We had Eric Kosoff. We had Adam Hartman. We had just a, a bunch of scientists. So I would tell your listeners to go to the Metabolic Therapeutics website. We're in the process now of sending out the invitation for speakers. And pretty soon, uh, I think we might have a preliminary site set up for that, but we'll be updating that soon with all the different speakers and the topics that are going to be talked about. And we, we really try to emphasize basic science. So you're going to find lectures on neurophysiology, on cancer biology, proteomics, tracer-based metabolomics, performance. Jeff Bolick will be there talking about performance. It'll be a kind of a mix of, of things related to not just the ketogenic diet, but metabolism in general. Sounds fantastic. So anyone could attend that? Uh, anyone can attend that. Yeah, we should have the registration going up soon. So <laughs> the problem, if you want to call it a problem that we had, is that last year the venue was kind of small and we wanted originally to keep it small, the capita about 250, but we had to turn so many people away. So this year we're going to blow it up a little bit and probably have about maybe six, 700 people, hopefully, like in the same venue, but we're going to get the whole sort of hotel. And you're going to find a lot of great companies there that are producing these exogenous ketones. So Prove It is going to be there, probably Forever Green. The company Ketogenics, they make a great product that I've been testing recently during my travels. Keto Sports hopefully will be there. And uh, Quest Nutrition has a big footprint in our conference, and they have been incredibly supportive of our work. Uh, Cyvation who is really the leader in branched chain amino acid supplements will be there. Let me see that. Yeah, we have a lot of, we have good sponsorship supporting this area of research. And it's really exciting to me that this it's becoming so popular. It's almost easy to find companies that are now emerging that are interested in developing products that can enhance nutritional ketosis. So it's, it's fun to sort of see a market for this evolving and they're creating products that I think will be very beneficial to patients even that are following nutritional ketosis for managing a disease process. So I've, I do get emails every single day from patients that are using these products that uh, are just saying it made a world of a difference. Like they couldn't get into ketosis and once they did or their child did, they started getting all these benefits from, from the ketones. So yeah, it's a super exciting area. You're very lucky to be right in the center of it. Yeah, I do feel lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a quick anecdote, like uh, I gave some MCT powders and C8 to my mother because she has tremors and they've been getting worse over time and they're so much better. It seems she's really surprised by that. It is an exciting area and it does seem to be uh, just have so many crazy benefits, so broad compared to most of the other things we look at, which is one of the reasons I've covered it several times in different episodes, fasting, ketosis, all of these. Whereas most topics I don't cover in many episodes, but this one just has so many applications that it's just interesting. And I think it's worthwhile for people to learn more and more about it. Absolutely. 
Also, Dom, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You covered such a wealth of topics and there's actually like so much more I know you could talk about. So thanks very much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Damien. I appreciate it. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website theQuantifiedBody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.